Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks and welcome to um, Extra Helpings, uh, number two for series three. And if you've just joined us, don't forget, go back and check out our our rather large back catalogue because we've got quite a few eps now. That's right. And if you've got time, go and check out those episodes you might have missed. Yeah, time to catch up. But today, as he said, we're looking at episodes six to nine. Yeah, and we started off with the Sharif of Mecca, which brings me to a point, Paul, and it's a point we've been asked by quite a few of the listeners, because in that ep, you talked a lot, of course, about Arabia, but also about how really the Arab Revolt covered a much bigger area, as you said, the whole of the Middle East. Now, I can put my finger on the map and point to Arabia, but where do I exactly point to when it comes to the Middle East? Is it is it a matter of shifting sands? <laughs> well, I must admit, the problem with the Middle East is, as a term and a phrase, it does mean completely different things to different people. So a lot of the time, it really does depend who you're talking to. Um, but like a lot of things historically, it does go back to the military in many ways, because in 1900, it was used for the first time by a guy called General Sir Thomas Gordon. He, he was a British intelligence officer and he wanted to refer to the middle east and um, you know sort of differentiate it from the the far east the orient and the near east what we used to call the levant so he used the term middle east to define persia and afghanistan but the problem is almost immediately in 1902 the usa jumped in and their naval officer captain alfred Mahan, he said, no, I want to use that phrase to refer to all those countries that surround the Persian Gulf. And that sort of sets the tone for it, really, Mikey, because it does really move around, like you say, shifting sands, if you like, um, over the next few years. Then there's an article in The Times um, in London that's called The Middle Eastern Question. And that refers to any of the countries west of India that the Crown considers a threat to the empire. Um, So, of course, you've got Afghanistan and Persia, but you've also got Tibet in there as well. Um, Now, as we said in the episode, by World War I, where we were talking about the Arab revolt, and the Middle East really is a hot topic. And that's when the Royal Geographic Society get involved. And they propose that we should definitely use the term Middle East, but it should be applied to all the Arabic speaking countries, you know, part of the Arab revolt. But of course, the problem with that, as someone quickly pointed out, was that they'd also include half of North Africa. And so, you know, for the next couple of decades, it does refer to mostly what we would call the Arab world today, but sort of stopping at Egypt. And then in World War II, of course, with that area of the world coming back into sharper focus, the term Near East makes a bit of a comeback. And it stays that way pretty much through to the Suez Crisis. <laughs> but then, of course, you've got the, the wars of Israel, the Lebanon Civil War, the revolution to overthrow the Shah in Iran. 
Now things are happening so fast, lines on the map are becoming redundant almost as quickly as they're being drawn. So much so that by the 70s and 80s, Mikey, really, really, it's up to you. You can take your pick about what constitutes any Middle Eastern country. And in fact, since the beginning of this century, it's actually got even more complicated because now there's another phrase doing the rounds, the greater Middle East, you know, in the political and military circles. And that's used not just to refer to Persia, not just to refer to the Arab world, but also much of Central Asia, the Caucasus, even Chechnya. Well, thanks, mate. You really cleared that up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's as clear as mud. But Mikey, I think you've got a bit of light relief. You've got a nice story about Lawrence, haven't you? Yes, but it's a story I hadn't come across before. It's just near the end of the war. It's October the 30th, 1918. Now, Lawrence has been summoned to Buckingham Palace, and he's going to meet George V. Now, Lawrence likes to think that this is going to be a meeting where he can you know, put forward the, the Arabian cause. Unfortunately, when he gets there, the first thing that happens to him is King George gives him a CB, very old military medal, the Companion of the Order of the Bath, Mm -hmm. And a DSO, a Distinguished Service Order. And then something strange happens. Now, either Lawrence cottons on to the fact they're about to give him a knighthood or it's all in his own head. Either way, he wants out. He gives the medals back to George, turns on his heels and makes a beeline for the door out of the palace, leaving a rather bewildered monarch in his wake. All right, folks, so that obviously brings us on to episode seven, you know, those food wars, Vegemite versus Marmite, and of course, war food like bully beef. But Mikey, you've got a story that goes even further back than that, probably the first ever war food story, haven't you? Yes, mate, and we're talking about the most, well, the most feared soldiers of the ancient world, um, the Spartans. Now, the role of the cook in the Spartan camp was very important because he was in charge of enforcing what was known as the laws of Lysurgis. And they were pretty much the rationing laws about food and wine. Now, these laws, they meant that when it came to mealtimes, the dishes served up to your average Spartan soldier. Don't tell me. Yes, that's right, mate. They were pretty, dare I say, Spartan. They, <laughs> they really didn't get a lot to eat and drink. In fact... A lot of the Greeks, the other Greeks, would look down their noses on on Spartan food. And there was a rumour going around that the Spartans ate dogs. But it actually turns out that the Spartans started this rumour just to make people fear them just a bit more. But the one thing we do know about is that their main grub when they were on campaign was some disgusting-sounding broth known as milos zomos, or black soup. Okay, if you're starting with black broth, you know it's not going to sound good. The main ingredient, mate is pig's blood. Now, before we get all snotty about this, I'm a bit of a fan of black pudding, the old English black pudding. I'm not adverse to the idea of eating pig's blood, but this one's pretty mean. For a start, they'd leave the blood out for a couple of days to ripen up. Then they'd throw in whatever herbs and spices they could to maybe improve the flavour. But then they would throw in a lot of vinegar. Now, some contemporary writers say that the role of the vinegar was to stop the blood from clotting up too much. It sounds charming, doesn't it, mate? Others say, well, no, the Spartans just like the flavour. And we know about this from the writings of Athenaeus a few centuries later, who, when he was writing about the blood soup, proclaimed, it is natural enough for the Spartans to be the bravest of men, for any man in his sense would rather die 10,000 times over than live as miserably as this. And my favourite story was, you're in the movie 300? Yeah. Just before it came out, there's a guy in England who ran a whole chain of quite good Persian restaurants. So he used to run ads with the slogan, forget about Sparta, Persian cuisine was better. You know, I'm not one to choose sides when it comes to culinary wars, but when it comes to blood soup, I'm with the Persians. (laughs) 
So now we're in Japan, mate. I mean, yeah, you were talking about the, you know, the, those castles that were in Japan at the time of all those samurai shogun battles, and they're still there. And that reminded me, I mentioned I took my honeymoon in Japan. Well, we went to Kyoto and went to the Nijo Castle, which was built by your mate, Tokugawa Yasu, at the start of the 17th century. Mm. And there's a famous thing there called the Nightingale Floor. Now, look, you know me and woodwork, so I'm going to try and describe it as best as I can. Underneath the floorboards were a bunch of clamps that had nails going into them so that when you walked on the floor, the nail would rub against the clamp and make a sound like a nightingale. Now, this is so believable. I was there with my wife, and we were walking along it, and I said, I can't hear anything but the birds outside. At which point, my wife turned to me and said, Idiot, it's the floor. I go, fine. But here's the thing, too, and this is where we in the West get it wrong. We made the assumption that the floor was basically installed as some sort of assassin alarm system. But actually, no. It was installed because, well, it was considered a cool thing to have if you were a rich guy at the time. Having said that, castle attendants pretty quickly realised that they needed to walk at a very specific pace and rhythm just so the guards knew that it wasn't an assassin coming in in the night. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned assassins, Mikey, because that's right. In the episode, we talked about samurai, we talked about shoguns, but we've had quite a few questions and tweets, haven't we, Um, getting back about what about the ninjas? And I did promise that I'd try and talk about my other hero, the ninja Hattori Hanzo. So this is his story, mate. He's actually around in the same time, the, the Warring States period. And he, very early on in his life, earns the nickname the Demon Hanzo. Because at the age of 16, he actually goes into his first battle. And it's a nighttime attack, a siege on Udo Castle, where he actually leads 70 loyal ninjas to break into the castle at night and open the castle doors. Now, that brings him to prominence under the leader that we were talking about, Tokugayo Ieyasu, number three, if you remember, of the three great unifiers. But as we said in the episode, there is a bit of a problem with ninjas because, you know, the samurai, they live by this honourable code, whereas the ninjas traditionally were always seen as, you know, a little bit base, a little bit unworthy, you know, practising the dark arts compared to the Honourable Samurai Code. So it was quite difficult for them to raise through the ranks. But this guy, Hattori Hanzo, he is so impressive that Tokugawa Ieyasu takes him under his wing um, and he repays the favour in 1561 because Ieyasu's wife and son, they've been kidnapped by a rival and been held hostage. So Hanzo, he leads the raid to spring them from Kamanogo Castle, which all goes successfully. He returns the wife and son. He gets promoted again, and he does decades of honourable service. And probably the highlight is in 1582, which is when, if you remember, Oda Nobunaga dies, the number one of the great unifiers. That's when the big war breaks out. That's when the rival clans are all fighting against each other. So Tokugawa Ieyasu, he suddenly finds himself stranded on the wrong side of enemy lines at the end of 1582. But Hanzo's there at his side, and he organises for them to travel by night in secret, to evade the checkpoints, to escape catcher, and Hanzo safely guides his master back to Mikawa province, which is the shogun's base in southern Honshu. And as a reward, Shogun Tokugawa elevates him to the full rank of samurai, and he's one of the few ninjas that manages to cross that divide. 
All right, so that brings us to the last episode of season three, you know, the South Sea bubble. And it was great. We got to hear from so many of our UK listeners on this one, wasn't it, Mikey? Because, of course, London's Exchange Alley, where all the action took place, that 18th century nook and cranny between the Royal Exchange and the Bank of England, it's still there. In fact, there's a plaque to Garraway's Coffee House on the wall, although sadly inside it seems now to be a pitch and piano pub. Um, Lloyd's of London, of course, is still around the corner. Don't forget that too started out as a coffee parlour. And while Jonathan's, unfortunately, is no longer, we got a great tweet telling us that when the official London Stock Exchange was finally built in 1801, it went for many years by the nickname of New Jonathan's. And we won't ask how many asset bubbles that building's seen burst. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different podcast. But listeners did want to ask more on Sir Isaac Newton, didn't they? Yes, mate. And no surprise, a lot of them wanted to know about the old apple story. Now, we know the whole apple falling on the head is apocryphal. But actually, Newton and apples, it's a little bit more complicated than that. In fact, in 1752, a guy called William Stuckley, who'd been a friend of Newton... Uh, published his book, Memoirs of Sir Isaac Newton's Life. Now, look, it's 25 years after Newton's died that he, that he publishes this, and you're not going to believe this, the reason he said he held off so long was he didn't want to appear over-hasty and cashing in on the great man's death. But anyway, he tells a story about going over to Newton's place just before Newton died and saying, after dinner and the weather being warm, we went into the garden and drank tea under the shade of some apple trees. He told me he was just in the same situation as when formerly the notion of gravitation came into his mind, occasioned by the fall of an apple, as he sat in a contemplative mood. Okay, so Newton says that he got the idea of gravity from seeing an apple fall when he was staying at his parents' house in 1666. Now, we do know there were apple trees on the ground of Warsaw Manor, and we do know that he was there in 1666 because he was escaping Cambridge because of the plague. He'd gone into a phrase we all know, lockdown. But here's the thing. I'm going to defer here to Keith Moore, head of archives at the Royal Society. He points out, Newton cleverly honed this anecdote over time. The story was certainly true, but let's say it got better with the telling. And here's a theory of mine. I think Newton used to love telling this story because it casts him the light of the great Eureka moment. And also, too, it gives him a, a way of passing by the fact that he had spent many years researching the work of Galileo, Thomas Steele, Kepler and Copernicus. And I have to say, Mikey, after hearing some of the other stories about Newton, I thoroughly agree with you. So there you are. But of course, we can't leave the South Sea bubble without the famous quote where it is moved on the hallowed floors of Britain's House of Commons, Parliament no less, that in the wake of the economic collapse and all the various shenanigans, it was said, all bankers and merchant bankers should be tied up in sacks filled with snakes and tossed into the River Thames. As true today as it was 301 years ago, mate. Well, that wraps up season three with uh, some extra helpings. Hope you enjoyed them, folks. So if there are any episodes you've missed, you know, go back and check them out. You know, or as Mikey says, you know, there's a bit of a back catalogue now as well. Have that fitted in before we get on to season four. But the good thing is we'll get season four squeezed in before Christmas. So look forward to seeing you next time. Mm-hmm.